Today, we're going to speak with Daniel Epstein, the founder of Unreasonable, on his long, long journey of, of building his impact portfolio of companies, now supporting over 200 entrepreneurs who have raised more than $4 billion in financing, generating over $3 billion in revenue, and are impacting the lives of more than 400 million individuals across 180 plus countries. He has been named by Fortune Magazine as one of the world's 50 greatest leaders, alongside the likes of Bill Gates and Tim Cook. He was also awarded Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 Entrepreneur. He was also named by Forbes as one of the top 30 most impactful entrepreneurs. He also received the prestigious Award of Entrepreneur of the World, along with Richard Branson and the President of Liberia at the Global Entrepreneurship Forum. I'm really grateful that Daniel took the time to sit down with me because he has just a plethora of, of knowledge and, and sort of really being raw and honest about his journey of starting his company and, and how for you know, nearly a decade, things were, were not going well, right? I mean, he, he had real, real, you know, entrepreneur struggles early on since he was 19. You know, he started a ton of companies and, and obviously learned a lot about how to not do things, which is the most important part, I think, sometimes. So he shares his, his honest opinion about, you know, the mistakes that he's made along the way and some of his mental hurdles that he had to overcome, you know, just kind of dealing with not failure, but just mistakes, right? And, and things that we have to learn and how it's tough to to be an entrepreneur and, and go through these hurdles and these trials and tribulations, and but yet still have that passion that burns within you. And, and I think he he shed the light on that very, very well, where it's like, it didn't really matter what happened to me. You know, he was like, this was going to work because it just, it was just burned within him. So it just, something like that just can't be taken away. So I'm super, super excited for, for you guys to hear this. I mean, it's an amazing conversation. Couple of housekeeping notes. The jobs board is back up. So just jobs.causeartist.com or just go to causeartist.com and click on job board. Um, I had some issues with it a few months ago and sort of figured out the kinks and everything. So that's back up and live where you can post jobs for free, social impact jobs. Um, obviously search for impact jobs as well. So if you have any questions about that, just let me know. The big thing coming up on down the pipeline is social impact wired. And that is super, super close to finally being done. And essentially what that is going to be is a wire service for social impact news. And it'll be the exclusive route that cause artists will go to to get a lot of his content that comes out. So I'll, I'll start to talk more about that when it's live. But it's essentially a way for me to spotlight all the news that gets emailed to me. I just can't get to it, get to all of it. But this is a way where this wire service will allow everybody to submit their stuff and get featured on cause artist in one way or another based on the the package that you choose but if again if you have any questions about that just just reach out to me grant at causeartist.com yeah i hope everybody's having a, a great day and, and a great week and hope everybody is staying healthy and stay safe and we'll talk soon thanks thought that it was interesting that you studied philosophy and I, yeah yeah and i think that might be a good a good starting point because it was sort of early on in your let's say career yeah. and let, let's kind of start there and, and take us into how you went from from that point to starting you know the unreasonable group unreasonable capital unreasonable yeah. all this uh the reasonable portfolio of, of, of venture so to speak yeah, I, I, like I was just mentioning, it is uh, you know, in this strange moment in time, right? I was surrounding COVID in the pandemic um, as travel has, in essence, halted. Um, it has given me the chance to kind of go back into my roots uh, in, in terms of philosophy, which actually really set me on the path 
uh, to, to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so we'll get there eventually, but let's go back <laughs> in time you know, to your question uh, and keep me on track because talking Absolutely. about philosophy gets me amped. I'm, yeah, I, I started university. I'm uh, like everybody I, who ends up going to school. I am, yeah, I was, I was probably a little bit overly ambitious. I started out studying uh, math, finance, and econ. I kind of knew that I was either going to be a math professor I was going to be uh, a form of a pirate, which I'll get into in a second, uh, or I was going to kind of go into business and harness that. Um, and I had, I had uh, previous to this, uh, interned at the Chicago Board of Trade um, and I, under the former chairman and learned a lot about finance. And so there was interest there. But uh, I had to take a Humanities 101 course I um, just as a freshman. And uh, I, I took philosophy, philosophy 101. And uh, I kid you not, Grant, it was like a, it was hedonistic mind candy. I, um, <laughs> I, I had never, I never you know, explored philosophy uh, before and immediately fell passionately in love with it and and that was opposed to you know, what I was learning you know business and finance uh, and and I think the reason was I am um, philosophy was teaching me how to think and business mm. school was teaching me what to think I have a I think naturally like irreverent bone in my body somewhere that like doesn't do well in those circumstances right, um, right. and I, what philosophy opened my eyes to was, um, and that's just a question almost everything, um, and to root your decisions on these like fundamental premises, which for me are values, right? Um, and that's kind of what led into all this stuff. But I, I remember I you know, coming home for Thanksgiving, uh, first semester of my freshman year, I had, uh, we we're having this conversation as a family and, you know, basically said, you know, we're talking about how school's going and I don't think I had told them that I was going to drop all three degrees. Oh, great. <laughs> study philosophy. <laughs> and uh, I, I do, I remember like the conversation I read the dinner table basically said, yeah, I'm changing what I'm studying. I'm dropping math, finance and, and econ. I'm parents, you know, that sounds like I'm dropping out, which was all also part of you know original plan that I had. I um, and uh, I said no, no no I'm not dropping out I'm studying philosophy. And I remember my dad. He, uh, he was like what are you gonna ask me whether or not this table exists? I was like dad I was studying epistemology in one of my classes which is the study of knowledge. Yeah dad, that is such a good question. And he was like oh. <laughs> just like walked out now to be fair though my parents are really supportive i and they've always had just a lot of trust i am in terms of kind of a long leash but i dove into philosophy and i remember you know also that time university you're walking around and everybody asks you what do you want to be right i and 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 i kind of chose the path of entrepreneur when i said earlier i was either gonna be like a pirate or an entrepreneur yeah. both of those were a form of in essence flipping the bird to the status quo right I, either you're a pirate and you live outside of it I'm, mm -hmm. I, you know, my plan there inspired by one of my best friends growing up was to become a commercial like salmon fisherman up in Alaska, do okay. that six weeks out of the year. And then, um, you know, vagabond, live on a sailboat, whatever that might be. I, but you know, live close to the earth and kind of on your own means. I was, it was like, yeah. I was very serious about it. The other option is be an entrepreneur, uh, which is you don't accept the status quo. Um, you have a reverence for it and you try to transform it. Right. Yep. Um, and I, Clearly, that's kind of the path I went on. Uh, but I'd, I'd go around, people would ask you, what do you want to be? And I would say, I want to be an entrepreneur. And then they would say, well, like, that's so cool. You know, what's your company? And i like, I don't have any. And like, what are your ideas? It's like, I don't have any. <laughs> it's just like, what are you? You know, it's just, it's just kind of awkward. Good start. And I, good start. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good start. So it wasn't until I was sitting with my journal. I was a very, like, uh, disciplined uh, journaler uh, during my first few years of university. And I... Um, it was December, right before the holiday break. I'm sitting with my journal, I have all these business plans that I'm writing out, and nothing is resonating. Like it's just, you know, am I going to start a 
e-commerce company or an apparel company or this new thing called social media. Like what's mm-hmm. nothing's striking any chord. I'm not finding anything. And then I put my 18 year old naive, you know, philosopher hat on. I said, well, let's just break down entrepreneurship to its fundamentals. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be an entrepreneur? And I wrote in my journal, I, on one line, I wrote, all entrepreneurs design solutions to problem sets. And I wrote on the second line, well, I can choose the nature of the problem sets I want to solve. I wrote on the third line, I'm only going to work on problem sets worthy of my life's work. I'm, I was 18 going on 19. I, the only thing I knew about entrepreneurship is that it's really hard. It's like literally like the only thing. All mm-hmm. I know are the stats, right? Nine out of 10 companies, five years after, after formation of the US don't exist. I, and so I figured, and I didn't use these words, but I figured, yeah, in essence, if I'm going to leverage my like reputation, my sleep, my equity, my relationships into starting something, you know, why not start a company that if we succeed, if we succeed, you know, we yeah. bend history in the right direction like because of the nature of the problem that we set out to solve. That to me was just so much more exciting. And if it's going to be hard anyways, you know, why not go after solving a problem that matters? Like that was, and, and once I kind of realized it's a simple like thought process, but once I realized that that's possible, I mean, there's just literally no going back. Like everything else seems meaningless. I have no interest in any of these other types of companies, right? Uh, let's just solve these challenges. And so that that threw me down just a, a, a wild ride. It, uh, it, it got me addicted to entrepreneurship in the same mm-hmm. way that I fell in love with philosophy. But you know what's been interesting is I, you know, I've been riffing with one of my friends and teammates. Um, his name's Will Butler, runs our alumni. And mm-hmm. I, we were on a mountain bike ride the other day. We were talking about Adam Smith, I'm, who yeah. I foundational kind of philosopher of, of capitalism I, in a lot of ways. And I think we've forgotten is, you know, the wealth of nations, right? Talks about the invisible hand of capitalism and distrib- distribution and specialization of work and all this stuff. But the reason he wrote the wealth of nations, it, it was it was out of uh, morality. Like he, um, what was it called? Uh, the book that he wrote before is like the theory, I think it's the theory on moral sentiment um, was his main uh, authored piece before he wrote Wealth of Nations. And, okay. and it was morality that drove him to the model of capitalism. He thought that that would lead to the most just, egalitarian, uh, you know, and fair society. And, and I think that that's what gets me so excited about what we're trying to do. Which the is theory of moral sentiments? Is that it right? is. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Theory of moral sentiments. Yeah. 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 I like the foundational kind of philosophical you know, uh, underpinnings of capitalism were rooted in morale. And, yeah. and we've gone so far from that, right? Like so far from that. And I think the goal we have at a reasonable now is it's, it's deeply philosophical. It's going back to that original attention, which is let's evolve capitalism to be a creative rather than destructive force, because it's, it's just a tool, right? And the analogy that I love is that, you know, a hammer, can be used to build a house or tear a house down, right? So how do we go yeah. back to like those philosophical sure. roots and and ensure that we're building a house that's inclusive, that's just, that's fair, uh, you know, that's regenerative. Um, and I think that's the opportunity. But yeah, it all starts with philosophy. It all stopped ripping. <laughs> so when when well, let's still go back to the past because yeah, it, you know, it's how do you even? What are the first steps of starting unreasonable? Right? What were the first? Obviously, it wasn't what it is now, as it's sort yeah. of multiple things, right? It's probably started yeah. as as one thing, right? And mm. with just you, right? Was there was there a phone call or like somebody that inspired you to start this, or did you just start it? And was oh, it man. just like it was messy? Was it just like a blog? <laughs> was it just like what was it like 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 yeah. week one, month one, year one? What was yeah. it? And then we'll talk about what it is now. 
Uh, you want the real story. Yes. <laughs> you want the full story. <laughs> uh, it's messy. Um, so for, first, I, you know, one, a dear friend, one of our mentors, is um, his name's Tom Chi, and he was kind of founding designer at Google X and you know, Google Glass and the self-driving car, all stuff. He's just brilliant. I am, and he, he framed this really well for me, and I think this is very true. I didn't have any education or really any guidance uh, you know, as, as a startup entrepreneur. Um, and the analogy that he uses that I'll play with is, is riding a bike, which mm-hmm. is like, so how do you start? You don't read about how to ride a bike, right? You don't, you don't talk to others and then learn how to ride a bike. You get on the damn thing and you pedal and yep. you fall over and you scratch your knee or you break your wrist <laughs> and you get back up and you go again and you get back up and you go again. And I think entrepreneurship is the exact same thing. It's like we, you learn by doing like through and through. And so, uh, yeah, I learned by doing, um, and that means it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> it's trying yeah. to get to your point. Um, and so, painful, messy and painful. Messy, painful. I'm, um, you know, someone asked me, "Do you have any regrets?" It's like, ah, fuck yeah, many, <laughs> like many of regrets. I can tell you the stories and all of them. But uh, yeah, part of it was so. How, how did we start unreasonable? Uh, anybody you can convince through like wild visions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and some charisma uh, to kind of join you up uh, on these journeys. But we, uh, myself and a few friends um, started a company. We we're trying to make higher education more affordable. I started a company, eventually became a business called Reasonable Adventures, but looking at the ecotourism landscape globally, I yes. had, yeah, how, how do we ensure that uh, ecotourism is an economic form of sustainable development in the developing world it was like really the push there. And then meanwhile, I, I was really lucky to get selected I, to be a part of a organization that's called the uh, Global Institute for Leadership and Civic Development. Trust me, I had no business being selected for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a gathering out, out of the Czech Republic in Prague. I, I had, uh, you know, the, the premise there was select individuals I, um, who are going to be kind of future future leaders um, around the world, uh, really global by nature. My, my roommate, uh, his name was Orkan. Uh, he's uh, from Baku, Azerbaijan. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and when I first met him, I said, hey, I'm Daniel, I'm coming from Colorado. And he, he was like, I am Orkan from Azerbaijan. And kind of how he said it, I actually thought he sneezed because I'd never heard of, this is how clueless I was. <laughs> you know, I'd never heard of Azerbaijan as a place. And uh, yeah, he spoke multiple languages. He was just, I mean, he was, he was brilliant. Uh, but yeah. truly brilliant. So that, that group um, was this amazing group of probably like 40 of us from maybe 30 countries. Man, that's you know, awesome. all, these, all these misfits who were really forging community uh, and gaining empathy uh, mm-hmm. for what the world really looks like through all these different perspectives and all these different eyes. And that, that experience um, l- led me to realize like the power of bringing together a community of uh, you know misfits who wanted to do good in the world, uh, where where I felt like it had fallen short was it was largely focused on empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, gaining empathy for uh, the global context that we all live in, so that if you are a future leader, you know, you'll have a clear understanding, I think, of how the world moves and works, and and you'll care more, like you'll be more compassionate right. in a lot of ways. Right. Um, so a lot of it was focused on issues, and what drove me crazy was, and I saw this in philosophy too. This is where philosophy drove me nuts. Is like <laughs> I knew everything about every ism, not everything. Uh, but we studied isms, right? Classism, racism, genderism, ageism, ableism, like the whole thing. And it was like, how do we go beyond the, uh, you know, knowledge and empathy of issues to actually changing, right? Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing that really pulled me. So uh, meanwhile, I'm like working on all these different startups and they're all action oriented. And then I'm gaining this perspective for global issues and the power of bringing together a community and, and forging relationships there. And what I realized is there wasn't a community for 
you know, specifically entrepreneurs who were uh, probably too action oriented, <laughs> yeah. right? who were foolhardy enough to believe they can quote unquote, you know, change the world, but so hell bent and so determined they won't stop until they do. Like there wasn't a community like that, that I could sign yeah. up for. Um, yeah. And at that time, there were really two you know, accelerators that, that were kind of popular. You had Techstars, which was based here out of Boulder, and then you had Y Combinator out of the Valley. I, and I had no, I, I really admire both organizations, yeah. but I had no interest in being a part of those communities because they were about launching companies uh, you know, to like, have great investment opportunities. Right. Zero interest there. I am, I, for me, I, and I, so, really wanted this community of other misfits because I felt like a misfit, these entrepreneurs um, who were going to go after it. And that, that led to the genesis of Unreasonable. So in 20, 2008, we actually teamed up with that program in Prague and ran nice. a pilot program um, in Boulder. I, it was five weeks. I think we had maybe 17 entrepreneurs, 14 nationalities. We all lived together in the same house. Uh, you know, we took awesome. a lot of those. Like it was, it was amazing. And it was a mess. I, and so how did we start it? We just did. Had no money, yeah. Uh, yeah. no permission. I mean, when I say messy, I mean messy. I'll give you an example. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, here's a good example. Uh, we we didn't have housing set up. Uh, and, you know, we're going to have 70 participants. I think we, myself and a really good friend. Uh, was this the first like, fire festival? Did you actually throw the first fire festival? <laughs> it's like literally, I watched that documentary. I was like, oh my God, we were so close <laughs> to that shit. Uh, but uh, no, but what we, we, we had like a relationship with student housing where we were going to, because it was in the summer. So this, the campus is basically vacant. I think we were going to gotcha. use engineering dorms, but then it, it kind of fell through. And so very last minute, we needed to scramble to get uh, a new house and um what's really interesting is you know there's a big greek system in a uh, boulder i was i wasn't a part of it um but certainly had friends there and the sorority houses are these beautiful mansions like absolutely yeah. stunning and they're vacant in the summertime right mm. all the all the all the girls go back home or whatever it might be um and so we were able to like extremely last minute convince a sorority to let us rent out the entire place for five weeks over the summer but it was so last minute that we had uh, my co-founder of, of that program uh mike he delayed all of the participants gave them a tour of Boulder. And when he was walking up to the house, I literally got the keys to go in. We had never been inside of the house before. And so I opened the door, walked in, and then like everybody came in and we were like, are there enough rooms? We hope so. <laughs> and so it, it worked out, but um, we got we got lucky. Where we, we didn't get lucky is actually that that pilot program, I, I, we, we had to shut it down. Um, and this gets to the, like, like the real actual messiness is what I think when you know, we were so young, uh, pretty yeah. foolhardy and built something really quickly. And meanwhile, I was working on other companies. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't give relationships the attention that they need. I, and so actually I, I, the organization that was in Prague, i Felt like it was it was kind of their program. I, mm. Mike and I set up a separate nonprofit. That it was a nonprofit. We felt like, oh no, no, this is a program we want to give to the participants. Let them run it into the future. We had a dispute. First time I've ever gotten a letter of intent to sue. Um, I thought that wow. meant that I was getting sued. You know, we're still students, right? Um, right. So this is like, oh, it's terrifying. I and I, I slipped into and I yeah, I can smile about it now. But it was like this interesting um, kind of episodic depression where for about two weeks, I really didn't eat. 
wasn't really sleeping. I felt like, you know, this was something we cared so much about and, and it was going to uh, kind of dissolve, right? Yeah. I had, I, um, he doesn't remember this meeting, which is interesting, but I met with the, the head of the entrepreneurship center at CU Boulder then, because I'm still a student. His name's Paul Jurdy. Um, he later became a board member. It's just an awesome entrepreneur. And yeah. I sat in the office and I walked in and he like, I looked horrible, right? And he called out, he said, you look like shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he said, what's going on? And I said, look, like everything we've been building in the last two years, I'm, it's been taken away and now I'm getting sued. I don't understand why and we we're just trying to do good. And like, all you know, I'm like, yeah. whoa, me kind of story. And Paul looks at me and he said, yeah, something along the lines of, I'm looking at the luckiest person I've seen in months. And I was like, Paul, did you just not hear anything I said? <laughs> he said, no. Look man. at me. Yeah. And he defined failure in a really powerful way. He said, look, he's like, you didn't fail. He said, failure is only failure if you don't if you don't start or you stop mm. because you just learn an invaluable lesson, which is you need to have contracts, even with people yeah. you love and trust. If you don't put it on paper, you're likely misaligned. He says, so get out of my office, do it again, do it better. And it creates some contracts because we had no paperwork yeah. on anything, yeah. you know? And that was this like complete shift in my mind, like valuable lesson. I would add a third to that. Though. I think failure is only failure if you don't start, if you stop, uh, or if you do something against your ethical or moral fiber. I uh, think that that's the definition of failure. Everything else is necessary uh, in order to you know, achieve something that hasn't been built before. Um, and so we, I walked out of that. Uh, one of the participants in that, and I would refer to it as a pilot program. Obviously, it wasn't supposed to be a pilot program. It was supposed <laughs> to be an organization. We shut it down. Out of the ashes of that, one of the participants, his name's Vladimir Povlovich Dubovsky. I became roommate, like best friend and co-founder, um, amongst a few other friends, but of Unreasonable Institute. Mm -hmm. I, so he, he had participated in that uh, initial program. So he knew everything that could be better from uh, an entrepreneur's perspective. Um, I was acutely aware of everything we could do better from like a executive or admin perspective. Mm -hmm. sure. So it was, a, it was an awesome partnership. I moved in together and, and got going on a Reasonable Institute. I and so that pilot program was in 2008. Well, I was still a student, summer 2008. And then we launched the first Reasonable Institute program in 2010. Uh, so it took us about a year to get that off the ground. Uh, but, uh, you know, across it, like, for that pilot program, we never, never raised any capital. You know, we never paid ourselves. Like, we also, this, this is too, it's really important, I think, to acknowledge privilege. I, especially with founding stories, right? I am, I was going to, at one point that, that I'll stop talking great. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> Do it, bro. I love it, man. I love it. So there was a stage with, uh, I, I was walking with uh, my now girlfriend, Chisia. This is like a couple years ago. I am, um, but I was maxed out on, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I think five credit cards. So it was about $88,000. I maxed out there. I had a million dollars in outstanding personal loans. Um, we never raised equity into the company. I kind of took mm -hmm. on that debt personally. I am and uh, no way to make payroll in like two weeks time. And we were, we were walking down the streets and uh, she was living in San Francisco that and we're walking around and there's these two, two guys with a big sign. I took a photo of it because I was like, wow, they're just being really honest. And on the sign painted, it just said broke as fuck need help. Right. And I walked yeah. up to the guys. I was like, you know what? Thank you for being honest. You know, chit chat yeah. with the guys. Yeah. like, you know, good, good humans who are struggling. And anyways, we kind of like walk away and uh, as we're walking down the, the sidewalk, Lay, uh, my girlfriend, pauses for a moment. And I kind of, you know, turn back. I'm like, what's going on, babe? And she's like, I just realized something. I said, what? She's like, you are more broke than they are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm probably like way more broke. I have a million dollars in outstanding debt, right? And at the same time, on these credit cards, I am paying higher interest rates 
you know, than you would get for microloans as a, you know, Bangladeshi woman yeah. living on less than two dollars a day. Yep. And so that like Anyways, I was going to write, and, and, at the, and then at the same time as that, I'm getting all these awards, like Entrepreneur mm. of the World and Fortune mm. Under 30 and like all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking like, he, the, you know, the headlines don't match up with reality. Like mm -hmm. this is kind of bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, and I, I was talking to a friend in Boulder, Andrew Hyde, I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about writing a piece about like, what's it really like? Like, what's mm -hmm. it really like behind the headlines? Like I'm five years into this journey and I am like beyond broke. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and, um, and there were opportunities to, uh, you know, have partnerships that were just kind of pending, but they hadn't come in. I was beyond broke, but I still had this like unfathomable confidence, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this, like, no, we're going to make it work no matter what. Never, ever doubted it. Never broke down, never hit a wall, like all these types of things. Right. I and was talking to my friend Andrew saying, I need to write a post on this. And he said, you can't write that post. I said, well, what, what do you mean? <laughs> like, people need to know what's really going on. I said, no, no, no. You can't write that post because you have to ask yourself, like, what's your safety net? He's like, why are you willing to risk everything with complete confidence and like basically no insecurity? He's like, because what's your safety net? I was like, well, my plan B is probably to get into Stanford uh, and, you know, and then get like a really well-paying job, at, which I would have been horrible at, but I you know, get into Stanford or go, I could go live in my parents' place. They have an extra room. I could go live at my brother's couch. I could go like- Or be a pirate fisherman. Where did that dream go? Right. But the difference was I had a safety net that wouldn't let me fall. Right. I, in essence, I, and so I just think, you know, as, as I tell the stories of like redlining it, right. Of going like a million dollars in debt personally, mm. of not paying myself for half a decade, mm. uh, all those things. I can do that because I come from a place of privilege. Right. Mm. I, mm. I am because I had a safety net to support me. Um, so I think it's just, it's just always important to, mentioned that but i yeah man i we, we started you know from scratch with an idea and a spark on our eyes and ended up you know almost getting sued and i uh, all these types of things but it never deterred i it certainly never deterred me and in fact it it did for that moment until paul said like failure's only failure yeah if, if you don't start it you stop so when i mean that's i mean yeah man i i, I imagine that it's funny because you're saying you were at such a such a dark time not dark time but you were feeling frustrated and, and you and that teacher said man you look dark. like shit you look like shit right but i'm saying i'm i'm going back to the time when you were 19 where you were mentally like disoriented and you look like shit as your teacher said and then that realization at that point too it's mm. they're kind of a little bit mirrors of each other a little bit where mm. at two points in your life you kind of all of a sudden it kind of hit it kind of hit you like that where you yeah. where you were just like something has to change or go differently right because this is yeah. not sustainable right yeah. it, as easy as it was to just get contracts like that's a yeah. that's a thing that you know it's it, it solved the problem right like you yeah. it became a light bulb and a realization that you had to do things better yeah. and then at, now further down our in your life you had something else happen that was just like okay i have to do things better like something has to, to change because this isn't sustainable and mm -hmm. i think as you probably talk to uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and, and people especially in the you know, sustainability space or social impact space. The idea that is that, look, you, in order to do what you're passionate about and make impact on the world, you have to be profitable in some form or fashion, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like it, that's yeah. sort of, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a business thing that will never change, right? Like yeah. that's something that doesn't need to be innovated, right? I think that is, yeah. we know that that needs to happen. So I guess let's go from there. And, and you know, yeah. that realization came, you wanted to write that post. Did you write that post first of all? And I did it. I did it. I got, I got to turn it out, but now I'm like, oh, I should write it and just put that massive caveat in there. 
as well. You know, I no, no, I, I didn't write that post. Well, after that, then did anything change? I mean, you had the obviously you had some sort of mental shift a little bit if you're going to write that and sort of you're at this honest place. But after that, like, what were the next you know three years like after yeah, that sort of realization we, that stuff had to change? Things clicked. Things clicked into place. I mm-hmm. so we had been I uh, you know working for um, a while, I uh, like years. On securing um, you know some some meaningful partnerships, and was incredibly grateful that I at that point in time the Nike Foundation, uh, mm-hmm. Pearson, and Barclays, in essence, they all had the creative courage to yeah. dive in with us. Um, and you know, once we secured um, those partnerships, um, then we we had the financial runway to actually grow the team uh, and to take everything you know to the next to the next level. I am to go from like, you know, there's these, all these stages of companies, right? You, like if you think of a life cycle of a business, zero to 10, zero is the idea. Maybe once the prototype two, it's like in market, but not mm-hmm. profitable. Maybe three is profitable. Like we went, it took us five years to go from two to three. I mean, like is, is yeah. the honest truth, right? Uh, it's like, I, you know, I was on a panel with um, the founder of Pinterest. Um, it was a couple of years ago when Pinterest just like blown up into like the public awareness. Maybe it was like yep. five years ago or something. I, I, I remember we chatted up there and then it's Q&A and somebody asked in the audience, they, they asked the founder of Pinterest, they said, you know, like you guys are just an overnight wonder. I mean, how does it feel to, to grow right. that quickly? And he grabs the mic out of the hand. He goes, we're, we're, we're a 10-year overnight wonder. And yeah. I want to be clear about that. We've been doing this for 10 years. You've only just now heard about us. And, right. and I think that that is also super underestimated by myself. I I think it's underestimated by most entrepreneurs. Like the slog mm. is real. And like, you kind of have to love it to mm. actually make it through it. Like you have to enjoy the difficulty, the painful lessons, the late hours, then like, like no money. Like, you know, like I think that it's, it's harder than I, it's made out to feel uh, in in the media landscape. Um, because the common story of you know the Silicon Valley entrepreneur that you know, has an idea raises a bunch of money, mm-hmm. that is not the common real story. It's just right. it's a, it's a great story to tell, and it does happen. Yeah. But that's probably you know one out of a hundred. And uh, so so anyways, you know, but but the interesting thing is like I I like I'm wired in a funny way. <laughs> I love this part, man. I love it. No matter how hard it was, and like you know, I'm, I'm like I remember a lot of people really like. I, and I'm not bragging at all because I think this sure. is foolish. But I was like, I was polyphasic sleeping, so I was training my body to sleep two hours a day, sleep thirty minutes every six hours. I I gave up relationships, I gave up skiing, which is crazy. Like I like the only thing I did was run because I could run out my front door, you know, yeah. like kind of thing. I'm I yeah, I mean it was it was nuts, and this is for years, like nearly a decade. Um, I was kind of that level of oh, oh, like, like it wasn't passion. It was obsession. And I, uh, yeah, I remember the people always like being concerned about me be like, are you okay? Like, how's your yeah, health? Yeah. You're going to hit a wall, man. You're going to break down. And I never did. I never did because I was so lucky to find, I think so much meaning in, in the work that like it pulled me through all mm-hmm. of that. So yeah, if, if, if I had any perspective, I never give advice, but it's just like, find that thing that like means, it means the world to you. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's where I think like, the problems we choose to solve as entrepreneurs like matter. I uh, and I think you, I think you have a much higher likelihood of success by choosing choosing problems that really mean a lot to you and society and the planet because that that level of meaning will help pull you through you know the five to ten year slog like mm-hmm. to get it. Well, we talked about 
the messy stuff, right? And, and sort of the hurdles, right? Let's talk about sort of now, right? And sort of the, the successes, so to speak, right? And sort of the, the good stuff that, that mm. keeps you motivated and, and keeps you to getting up. Um, yeah. So let's, I mean, there's a lot of, I think numbers we can throw out, but I mean, billions have been raised for, you know, social impact entrepreneurs or just, just for the sector in general, right? I think yeah. moving entrepreneurship to a different level, um, yeah. to a different, you know, thinking of a different ecosystem and a mindset on how to build companies and what problems to solve, I think is, is also an interesting thing that's that's sort of new is trying to yeah. is figure out new things to solve rather than just kind of resolving the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. uh, uh, but, but so, yeah, so let's talk about, I think, the successes. And I mean, we could start with unreasonable capital if you want, if you want to start with sort yeah. of a lot of things coming out, or if you want to just talk about where you're passionate about right now, most of, within within the, hey, the entire company. Next time we hang out, you gotta do the blabbering, Grant. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Hey, don't let me screw. Don't let me go because I'll go. I'll go for too long, man. I, I go for too long. Yeah, yeah. No, happy to. Uh, I mean, like, so, so where we are at today, which will tie into, I think, the yeah. the fund as well. Um, we, we support through through what we refer to as the Unreasonable Fellowship, um, just over two hundred CEOs. Um, these are uh, growth stage uh, companies, uh, CEOs who run growth stage companies that are profitably solving what we refer to as BFPs stands for big fucking problems. Mm-hmm. You can think of it as global issues, seemingly intractable societal environmental challenges. And, right. and in essence, the more money they make, uh, the more measurable impact that they have. It's baked into the DNA of their profit model. And that's something that you know we select for. So those companies in just the past couple of years, they've raised over five or not, not five, over $4 billion in equity. <laughs> they've generated um, just about that in, in revenues. Yeah, much more important to us, they're impacting the lives of over 400 million people in a measurable way and this is like this is everything from you know, future of agriculture uh, so mm-hmm. companies like arrow farms ba- based out of new haven in new jersey it's the largest vertical hydroponic farm in the world it's 390 times more efficient than traditional egg so that means what would take 390 acres they do in one acre mm. and they do it with 98 percent less water no soil no sunlight um, wow. and the nutrition value of their produce is higher like it's it's just it's nuts right it's right. like you talk about feeding the world and food insecurity this isn't yeah, vertical farming, aquaponic, hydroponic farming is not the only solution, but it has to be a part of the puzzle. Uh, we work with a company out of India called 1MG. It's the largest uh, mobile healthcare application or platform uh, in mm. all of India. They have over 30 million active users uh, looking at distributed affordable healthcare systems you know, across the subcontinent of India. Work with uh, hydrogen cell-powered vehicles out of Wales. It's 300 miles to a liter of hydrogen. The only thing that comes out of the exhaust pipe is purified hot water. You can literally make tea out of it. Like it's, it's kind of gross. Wow. Like can. Sure. Uh, you know, like whatever it might be. So there's over 200 companies like that, right? Gotcha. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyways, um, so the, fellow, the fellowship, uh, we have a lot of values. We only have one rule written in stone, even though it's not actually written in stone, but we should write it in stone, which is entrepreneur centricity. Right? We, we, we exist to scale up the most effective solutions in the world. I am, and I, you know, that, that, that's the primary goal. But what's happened is through the fellowship, we realized that by accident, we've built one of the best deal flow engines in the world. Um, 100%. Well, not the intention. This was right. not a investor first mindset. This was a entrepreneurship is hard. It's that much harder when you, you're running a mobile financing platform out of Nigeria. Uh, yeah, and you right. want to transform the lives of hundred million people. Like it's, the audacity that these unreasonable fellows have is is uh, it's pretty. I mean, it's unmatched. 
And so, so that's a hard journey to be on. So we started with like, let's just support them in any way that we can. And let's just mm -hmm. find the most effective solutions. Um, and then realize, okay, well, <laughs> they, they, there's a lot of elements of support, but about half the asks that our fellows come to us with is financing. At the same time, these are remarkably investable companies. You know, mm -hmm. they set up the nexus of uh, profit and impact. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's my personal belief that they, they outperform the market. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen that in a lot of cases. Um, and so uh, you know, with this deal flow engine, there's also a hunger of investors all around the world. Uh, and as they say, hey, we want, like, we care about where we're allocating our capital. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and that echoes. And we want to grow you know, our investment base, but we also want to do it in the right way. And so um, there's a lot of hunger for these types of opportunities. So, we raised a, an investment fund a couple of years ago. It was a reasonable capital fund one. That was really focused on early stage companies in the developing world, profitably solving issues related to poverty. It's kind of the thesis. Um, mm -hmm. That fund's going really well. My partner, uh, Ashok Reddy, on that is uh, uh, he's brilliant. And uh, we've had a lot of, lot of fun uh, supporting uh, you know, these companies around the world in emerging markets. Um, what we now, because the organization has transitioned to much later stage businesses, right? To try yeah. to scale what's already already working. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're geared up to raise a, a new global fund. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, the fund came second. I think that's a really important thing. Right. This was, this was all about community and just supporting any way that we can. And then we've realized that you know, by accident, this has become one of the best deal flow engines out there. And so, um, you know, and then on top of that, we also, we have a media component. I believe that these stories are largely untold uh, yeah, that the world, I agree. right? Like, uh, I mean, you, you're probably pretty spoiled with exposure to these kind of, these types of yeah. innovations, right? Uh, but most of the world doesn't know it's possible. Uh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's easy to get really discouraged when you don't know what's possible. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they, like, I am just surrounded by optimism. Like that, you know, like, right. you, like you spend any time with these CEOs. And I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing, right? Like companies like uh, Uma is one of our fellows, uh, his company's Memphis Meats. You know, they're, they're growing meat because we raise and kill about 80 billion animals a year for human consumption. If you look at greenhouse gas emissions, that's yeah. we talk to, 18 to 35% is tied into a, a production of protein uh, around the world. You look at what that does for land and so on. And so he's able to literally grow stem cells uh, in hmm. a clean environment without the need to raise or kill animals. Um, and it works. They're growing steak, duck, fish, wow. chicken. Uh, you know, the largest backers in the company, SoftBank just put uh, well over $100 million in. But before that, it was Tyson and Cargill, which are the two largest Meat oh, company, yeah, meat producers yeah. in the U.S. I and I, yeah, you spend time with him, and you know, oh my gosh, okay, actually, we can we can solve this. This is real. Yeah. This is this. This is not. This is not science fiction. Is nonfiction. It's just uh, <laughs> it's, it's just on the edge, and so most of the world doesn't know about. It. So the media component for us is is uh, really important uh, in terms of getting these stories kind of out there helps give exposure, uh, hopefully drive resources into the companies, but also it, uh, I think it inspires some hope at a time when we really need it. You know? Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Do you see, sorry, Grant, I'm yeah, no, man, I, I love it. I love it. Do you see like you mentioned emerging markets? I mean, they, I mean, that whole world is, is so, it's so different where, you know, cultures might be different. Language might be different. The same sort of technologies that we use, it's becoming more and more of a norm in certain areas yeah. around the world where, you know, the internet, obviously it changed America, right? I mean, it changed yeah. the world for sure, but like it just set gasoline to sort of like capitalism and to entrepreneurship and, yeah. and all these different things. And as we see the world sort of come online in, a, in 
you know, in a global way, right? Like, mm. I think we all probably agree that like water, food, air, and like yeah. the internet are like human rights, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. some it's some order, right? So yeah. the internet might be first, yeah. right? Yeah. Because then that opens the door to, to everything, right? And mm-hmm. do you see over the last, let's say even like five years or so, like what's happening in like emerging markets that's inspiring? Because I think that's, I think globally, we don't think of, of these, these enormously talented people around the world. Even if you're living in extreme poverty, that means you probably have extreme creativity. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, let's, let's maybe talk about just the emerging market in general and sort of where that's at and what you see from maybe the CEOs you talk to just from your personal perspective. I think the smartest solutions in the world are coming out of emerging markets. Uh, it's largely because the design constraints are harder and mm. constraints are what breed creativity. I think we're seeing like a full reversal. It, like we're just at the start of that, but I think it, it totally. will really reverse like the next like techno revolution, entrepreneurial revolution, a huge part of that's gonna come off the continent of Africa. I and and we you know, we have a kind of a front row seat. I'm supporting some of the companies there. But I you know, these these markets are are way ahead. Like we're so happy with Apple Pay. I you know, that was happening twelve years ago in Kenya. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's just it was like M-Pesa or something? Yeah, it was kind of the first big one. We work with a company called Paga. I, I kind of mentioned them or alluded to them in Nigeria, mm-hmm. mobile money platform, you know, helping bring financial services uh, to over 9 million people there. Um, and they're kind of just getting started. But there, I, I think that the age of like innovation coming out of like a very concentrated area, uh, Silicon Valley, or even the US more broadly, um, I think that age is, is past us. And uh, it's going to take a little while for like global consciousness to catch up to it. But when we start to source innovative solutions, we look globally, right? We say, okay, we want to like look at future of food, or we want to look at uh, you know closed loop manufacturing, zero waste supply chains, or we want to look at yep. healthcare, or whatever it might be. We're typically looking globally, and I'd say the most disruptive breakthrough solutions are coming out of the developing world, and uh, they're just not they're not uh, those stories aren't told as much, and they're not raising as much capital. Because yeah. it's harder for them to raise capital, but uh, yeah. I could give you endless examples. Um, <laughs> no, we don't have a ton of time. Yeah. But like literally, maybe know, we'll do. Uh, maybe we'll do a part two. Maybe we'll do a yeah. part two. <laughs> we should. We should. It's just like it's hard to believe. Like the level of like alchemy. You know, we work with companies that are taking methane and turning it into food. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's uh, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, I think that the. The next revolution in entrepreneurship is coming out of the developing world and emerging markets. And the reason it hasn't happened yet is it's they're starved for capital. Uh, yeah. Like the investor mindset hasn't transitioned there yet. And I think that'll take a little bit of time, but uh, you know, hopefully we can, we can play a role in that. The last question would be, is the new fund going to concentrate more on maybe emerging markets? Is that why maybe the new fund exists to go after sort of key, key yeah. sort of companies and, and sort of global areas, global cities around the world that you see tons of things yeah. happening. So the, the fund will be globally oriented, just like the fellowship. And in fact, it will, it will sit on top of the fellowship. So you okay. can almost think of it like a, a private index fund um, mm. versus a public one. The index yeah. are all the fellows. So we will, it'll be rules driven. We'll commit 20% capital to any round of financing that an entrepreneur is raising. That's an equity in at least $5 million that's led by, you know, a qualified or sophisticated investor. So that that will, yeah, anybody who invests into that will have a, 
uh, full global exposure across the portfolio, which which helps de-risk it because yeah. like yeah. markets are in constant flux and swing, um, and the world's relatively uh, unstable. I mm-hmm. and so I think to have a geographically and uh, like industry like diversified financing approach, um, I think will produce much stronger results. Um, but it's a little less risky. So uh, it will be as global as our fellowship, which is very global. But it will also invest <laughs> in the companies, you know, in Missouri or in Colorado or wherever it might be. Nice, nice. Well, I appreciate you so much for taking the time, man. I wish we had three hours. Um, so maybe we'll maybe we'll get to a part two sometime sometime soon That'd here. Be but best of luck, man. Uh, over the, you know getting through these these odd times, man. And, and you know tell the team that I'm inspired by everything they're doing and, and keep up the amazing work and. Hopefully we'll we'll talk to some more people within the the unreasonable ecosystem and kind of just dig dig deeper and deeper into everything that's going on. So appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate you making the time and <laughs> extending the invitation and opportunity. And yes, I think you will you will find that uh, uh, if if you do get a chance to share some conversation with my teammates, you'll be like, oh, that's that's why unreasonable is working. There's nothing yep. to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, man. Quite you know, quite truly though, I am. We're blessed with like some unbelievably brilliant minds and big hearts. So yeah, appreciate it very much, Grant. It's been a pleasure. And uh, you and I should talk where you do all the blabbering and I ask the questions. I would love it, dude. I would love (laughs) that. Love the work you're doing. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, you too, Grant.